0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we pay tribute to Mike Davis, who sadly died on October 25th. Mike was a prolific writer, historian, political activist, urban theorist, unabashed leftist, and author of dozens of books, most of which we featured in discussion right here on Beneath the Surface. He was also a dear friend and a friend of this program, Inc. I counted at least 30 interviews with him over the years. We begin paying tribute to Mike, and then we'll hear from Mike. All this when our program returns, in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to spend the hour paying tribute to Mike Davis, my dear friend of nearly 50 years, I've lost my dear friend, and the world has lost a voice like no other. An avalanche of remembrances and articles have appeared all over the world and covering multiple pages of the LA Times, New York Times, Guardian, El País, Design, The Manifesto, Liberación, and so many more all over the world, all a testament to Mike's powerful and distinctive influence, his many books and articles, his generosity his tireless life as a fighter against everything that diminishes human dignity and ravages the planet. I visited Mike a week ago with Bob Brenner and knew this day was coming. He had been bravely battling a triple whammy of cancers and had run out of steam. Mike chose his time to withdraw thanks to California's aid in dying law, surrounded by his amazing, loving family who survived him, Alessandro Moctezuma, James Casey and Roshine Davis. And even last week when we visited, we had wide-ranging discussions about Scottish and American revolutionary history, rock formations in the Pacific, the L.A. City Council scandals, the state of politics in the world. It's impossible to think that there won't be more. Our hearts and our love go to Alessandra, James, Casey, Roisin, and Jack in Ireland. I'd like to tell the listeners how I met Mike and how we became friends. I was a grad student at Glasgow University at the Institute of Soviet and East European Studies, working with Hillel Ticton on the journal Critique, a journal of, at that time, called Soviet Studies and Socialist Theory. There was always a lot of correspondence, but one envelope caught my eye. It was a letter from Mike, Mike Davis, who introduced himself as a student from Southern California on a Butcher's Union scholarship spending a year in Edinburgh. He said he'd written an article on Yevgeny Probrzensky, the left oppositionist, and he'd liked us to consider publishing it. I remember turning to Hillel and saying something like, A working-class hero is written about Probrzezinski. The song was in my head. I wrote to Mike and told him to come immediately to Glasgow. He showed up that week just in time to join us for the drive to London for some IMG aggregate, as they called the larger meetings of the International Marxist Group. On the return, Mike moved into the flat I lived in, in Glasgow, joining housemates, including another American grad student and a number of Chilean refugees who arrived shell-shocked from their terrible experiences in Pinochet's Chile, including my future husband, Roberto Navuris. We were all involved in politics, read and discussed incessantly, listened to Chilean revolutionary music, and Mike educated us with his deep understanding of the Irish struggles and many other subjects. Mike was already a runner before the word jogging had entered the vernacular. I couldn't understand why he'd go out each evening in the pouring rain to run three or four miles to the end of our street and back. No one did that. Mike's coordinates were Glasgow, Belfast, and London, where we marched, celebrated the death of Franco with a bottle of Rioja, and again, when the U.S. withdrew from Vietnam. By late 1979, we were all living in Los Angeles, and Mike was writing what would become... Prisoners of the American Dream. It's too large of a task to distill our friendship into a few words. We were there for each other in all the important events, political and personal. There's much more to tell, but I'm going to cut it short here and just say, quote, something that Mike wrote when he was asked about Occupy in 2011. I want to thank my son Eli for pointing this out. Here's Mike. He says, it's true that old radicals like me are quick to declare each new baby the Messiah. But this Occupy Wall Street child has the rainbow signed. I believe that we're seeing the rebirth of the quality that so markedly defined the migrants and strikers of the Great Depression, of my parents' generation, a broad, spontaneous compassion and solidarity based on a dangerously egalitarian ethic. It says, stop and give a hitchhiking family a ride. Never cross a picket line, even when you can't pay the rent. Share your last cigarette with a stranger. Steal milk when your kids have none, and then give half to the little kids next door, what my own mother did repeatedly in 1936. Listen carefully to the profoundly quiet people who have lost everything but their dignity. Cultivate the generosity of the we. What I mean to say, I suppose is that I'm most impressed by folks who've rallied to defend the occupations despite significant differences in age, in social class, and race. But equally, I adore the gutsy kids who are ready to face the coming winter on freezing streets just like their homeless sisters and brothers. Rest in peace, Mike Davis. And Now we're going to hear from our producer, director, and extraordinary engineer, Melissa Figueroa. Melissa was really around to record so many of the interviews that I did with Mike, maybe not way back to, I think, when I started interviewing him in 1986, I think was the first year when we did it on Prisoners of the American Dream. But Melissa came on board at what, 20 years ago, something like that. And she became a fan, let's say, or an admirer. And Mike influenced her in ways that she's going to tell you about. Melissa Figueroa has written a beautiful tribute. And here's Melissa.
1: Amongst all the beautiful tributes to Mike Davis over the past couple of days, I'd been struggling to find words that really reflect what he meant to me as an activist, scholar, thinker, and person. I only interacted with him a few times, all amazing moments, but he'd been kind of like a planet X to me, a distant center of gravity that fundamentally shaped my orbit and who I'd become. Much of my trajectory as all of the above has been molded by the brilliant people who were his friends and comrades, kind of like a two degrees of Mike Davis. As a baby radical in the late 90s and early 2000s, many of my mentors, Gene Warren and Lisa Lubo in particular, later Susie Weissman and Bob Brenner, and others who had called him friend and comrade for decades, raised me in the tradition of that unique mix of righteous defiance, brilliant genius, fighting spirit, and multicultural joy that is radical L.A., the one Mike and John Wiener lovingly chronicled in their magisterial work Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. City of Quartz was a book that made my hometown make sense to me in a way that shaped the poetics of how I saw my entire world, and it cut through the alienation and confusion that made me all my life simultaneously love and hate the city and soil that grew me. And then I learned about climate change and peak oil and resource depletion and the planetary crisis facing us, and everything changed. It was the early 2000s. I was with Studies for Global Justice at the time, a Marxist study group collective, and we created the Converging Storms curriculum that brought together the crises of climate capitalism, and fossil fuels so early in the game that when we took a lot of heat for doomsaying in a world that was already so caught up with more traditional social struggles. But it lit a fire in me to learn about it, to go back to school, and get rigorous about our ecological realities. But at the time, I didn't know what kind of major I could take to really get at the questions I wanted to look into. That's when Sean Guillory, another person in the collective, said to me, why don't you try geography? I laughed, like what, like maps and stuff? But that's when I learned the term political ecology, which led me to more of Mike's books, Ecology of Fear, Late Victorian Holocausts, Planet of Slums, Magical Urbanism. I read everything I could get my hands on, and that was it. I couldn't think about anything else. Pursuing this field at UCLA and Berkeley, I found more teachers, more two degrees of Mike Davis people, like Susanna Hecht and Dick Walker, who imprinted upon me more of Mike's work and perspective that is now so fundamental to my thinking about urbanism and ecology and environmental justice that it's like breathing. And then, when I couldn't be in academia anymore, remembering that he too was an ABD, an all-but-dissertation, a PhD who never finished the requirements, and yet still had so much impact on the body of knowledge that set people on the path of liberation and justice that helped me feel better about going my own way. Mike was also one of the rare people for whom my fangirl dreams were actually kind of fulfilled. I had always wanted to just have one deep, deep conversation with him about California political ecology, and I did, Right here on this show, on an incredible round table with Susie Weissman and Allie Metter's Knight. I always wanted to write about LA like him, at least with the perspective that was instilled in me by his work and his friends, to at least attempt the method and the depth of analysis and humanity and apply it to the communities I knew and loved. And I did. With yet another two degrees of Mike Davis person, Rob Wallace, and the Fantastic Neighborhoods team at Pandemic Research for the People, and it's up at prepthepeople.net. The article, as Rob described, walked the Davis path of molecular hill and socio political dale, and I know at least he read it. Mike Davis wasn't just an author or theorist. He shaped a whole ecosystem of consciousness that has influenced multiple generations of thinkers and writers and theorists, as well as changemakers and fighters and organic intellectuals and just people who know things are wrong and we must fight to make it right. He is an ancestor now, and I'd like to think he's somewhere with Jean and Lisa and all the friends waiting for him in the spirit world, laughing about how Marxists don't believe in the afterlife. And like an ancestor, we honor him by carrying his stories and wisdom for generations to come, guiding our thoughts and actions, encouraging us to think, love, and fight as we continue the struggle to get free. Mike Davis, presente. Mm Welcome back. I'm producer, director, and engineer Melissa Figueroa. We're continuing our tribute to Mike Davis today by airing some highlights from the many interviews Mike has done with Susie Weissman throughout the years. In September 2005, just weeks after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, Mike spoke to Susie from Ville Platte, Louisiana, bringing his unique and sometimes downright prophetic perspective to the disaster beyond the hurricane, as well as lifting up the unsung everyday heroes of community cooperation who remind us that even in the horrors of disaster, another better world is possible. Here's that interview now.
2: It's an absolute puzzle to people in Bill Platt. Why the Red Cross? And the airports are packed right now with Red Cross volunteers going on. The Red Cross is, is all over Baton Rouge. Why they have never seen the Red Cross? The only agency, I must say, the only outside agency that everybody is warned to is, particularly in the city, New Orleans, the Salvation Army is everywhere handing out ham hand sandwiches right. and water. But when I went to the refugee center, I, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that word. and I It's can't okay. use The word evacuate, because in Bill Platt, people talk about our company. They talk about their guests. They don't talk about refugees or evacuees. They talk about company. And the people who have come there, whether they come from the lower ninth ward or whether they come from white suburbs or Texas, are treated exactly like company. And I must tell you that the main danger in facing Hurricane Rita in Ville Platte was the danger of overeating all the Hurricane Gumbo and Jambalaya that was <laughs> But I spoke to Jennifer Vadrine. Jennifer is a woman been slept for two days when I talked to her. She's a black creole, one of the community leaders in Bill Platt and, and has the most gorgeous smile in all of Louisiana. And I asked her about well, what's the secret of your leadership down here? How do you make decisions and how do you organize? And she just laughed at me and she says, We don't have leadership. We don't have this you know, decision making. She says, We just know how to cooperate. Wow. And I was staying with a, a close friend and his family, uh Former student of mine named Anthony Farno. Now, their Sunday dinner family—they're what they call their immediate family—is 40 people, and they have a wedding. 800 people come. People in this part of the <laughs> country uh, know how to organize things spontaneously. They're a bit like the, you know, the old industrial workers of the world. They need no condescending le- leaders. The community can organize uh, the relief, and this is important to think about because right now. There are all these calls for militarizing future relief, for turning to some savior, some, you know, Rudy Giuliani type. And what's important to understand is what worked on the ground is community. What worked on the ground was cooperation. And the really unsung heroes of this are working class people in southern Indiana, black and white, who came to the aid not only of their neighbors, but the people in New Orleans, despite all the criminal stereotypes in the image. In New Orleans itself, the heroes were people like the Green Party, former members of the Black Panther Party, and the person who in some ways is most memorable to me is a woman named Elaine in her late 40s in a couple of streets, black working-class streets in the Lower Garden District that had long been the object of of, of chantrifiers and uh, developers who would love to turn this area in the condominium, and she saved several dozen people. She literally built an ark in her front yard, turned her, her driveway into an outdoor uh, living room, marched across the city looking for ice to store the insulin of a diabetic neighbor, and kept several dozen people together despite incredible uh, police harassment. And there are people like that all over New Orleans and all over. Southern Louisiana.
0: And I'm speaking with Mike Davis, looking up close at the heroism of people, ordinary people who cooperated in, instead of, I guess, as he said, having bureaucratic decisions in order to save themselves in the absence of the government that didn't appear. And when it did appear, in, it appeared in its most bureaucratic Form. And, and I'm really fascinated by this. Now, you were just going to say, but I also want you to, to turn in to the reconstruction. You mentioned that Halliburton is there. This has already become, you know, the stuff of comic strip jokes now that the no bid contracts of Halliburton and Fleur and others, Bechtel, are there. Who allows them to come in and how does the community decide to direct its own reconstruction?
2: Well, everybody in Louisiana is, of course, suspicious. Uh, a federal government that has been absent in some cases still for weeks, yet was immediately able to turn over billions of dollars of no bid contracts to Halliburton, to the Shaw Group, to, you know, mercenaries to treat New Orleans and southern, you know, Louisiana if it were on the Tigris and not on the Mississippi.
0: Right.
2: I should also add that this isn't simply a failure of leadership or bureaucracy or, or simply the result of the evisceration of FEMA by the Bush administration. A lot of the neglect that we've seen and a lot of the decisions that led to the deaths of hundreds of people were, in fact, deliberate decisions, and they occurred on all levels. That mm-hmm. is, they occurred on the city and state level as well as the federal level. Can I tell you a little bit about that?
0: Yes, please. And you said it very well in your your piece, Drowning All Illusions, so please do.
2: Well, I mean, for instance, there were 350 city buses parked in New Orleans uh, where they ended up actually being flooded, you know, parked out on, on the levee. 350 city buses and 250 drivers. This isn't counting hundreds of school buses. And of course everybody wonders why those buses weren't used to evacuate people from the city. In fact, many people, local people, tried to hardwire the buses. A few got out, others are, are scattered all over the city, piled up against trees. We sometimes forget New Orleans has an Amtrak station. Remember the famous song <laughs> yeah. City of New Orleans. The mayor himself and his so called homeland security director, Mayor Negan, have admitted that they didn't deliberately leave large stockpiles of food, water, portable toilets, and so on at the Superdome because they didn't want people, quote, to get too comfortable because <laughs> they're afraid of the people at the Superdome or the convention center.
0: Can I just interject on that one note and you get back to it, Mike? But sure. it seems, you know, because Barbara Bush's comments in Houston were of the same variety and it seems like there's this really paranoid class consciousness of the people at the top who seem to feel that they're besieged by poor and black people who any moment are about to take over. And so you see the militarized response to disasters that you just talked about by the Bush administration and the neglect by the local administration. It just seems that there's this fear that, you know, we, we wish was warranted, but.
2: Well, it, and it was an automatic smear. It happened before there was any real confirmed evidence that this You know, this anarchy, this zombie like violence that George Romero has seen in downtown New Orleans was taking place. The Times Mm Picayune, which is the daily paper in New Orleans, this afternoon came out with a breaking story that they've now identified a, a single potential victim of homicide in the convention center and the Superdome. At one point, they were talking about, you know, dozens of people being murdered, and nobody was murdered in the superdome. That died of natural causes, or an o- one overdose and a suicide. This one potential murder in the convention center. These, you know, frightening scenes of the city under the rule of marauding street gangs, which contributed to the fact that there were so much police brutality and overreaction by the troops who were sent in in the city, is in large part. You know, urban myth.
0: But, but did they congratulate? Is there any sense that at any level of government there's some, you know, let's say awe at the ability of uh, people like the heroes in uh, Ville Platte that you mentioned, who are able to pull together, cooperate, and organize on the ground and do what the government hasn't done? After all, you could call that a vindication of of the government's own ethos of well, letting it people... It's of
2: people. It's certainly a vindication of blue collar people. It's certainly a vindication of the grassroots and participatory democracy. But the point is that nothing is more feared at this moment than democratic participation in the reconstruction efforts and the rebuilding of the city, which will be the rebuilding on the basis of its, of its planned shrinkage. One of the most sinister and disturbing things right now in, in New Orleans or in Baton Rouge or wherever you go is the universal acceptance that a city that a month ago it was 70% black will become 50% black in the future. That 50 to 150,000 of its residents will never return to the city. The bigger point is this that everybody is rushing to this region, not just to New Orleans, but to the whole Gulf Coast. And they're mm-hmm. bringing all kinds of visions and pie dreams and utopias. Everything from the most sinister master plans for turning Las Vegas into a theme park caricature of itself, to all kinds of well-meaning designs for new urbanism. But none of this means anything, and in my mind, none of it should be supported until the fundamental principle is established. You know, the people of New Orleans and southern Louisiana have to choose their own destiny. There can't be any master planning or reconstruction without their participation particularly because what's being talked about is the abandonment of whole neighborhoods, the planned shrinkage of the city. Now, one of the big issues is the city has an election in in February. Will the people who are dispersed across the country, will they be given absentee ballots? Will they vote?
0: And do they even know where they are?
2: I think your listeners probably know that the, the political calculus here is quite extraordinary. Louisiana is the state where black democratic voters in New Orleans often hold the balance of power in state elections. Senate elections in particular are very close. And Karl Rove, who knows the electoral calculus on every single congressional district in the country, realizes that if say 10 or 15,000 active black democrats did not return to New Orleans, then Louisiana changes from a pink state into a solidly red state like Mississippi. There is a very broad consensus amongst different elites, including elites who normally don't get along and will fight over the details of Reconstruction, that the expulsion of 100 to 150,000 poor African Americans from New Orleans is a good thing. And this is the ethnic cleansing that we have to fight against. And we have to insist on the right of everybody who lived in New Orleans before this disaster, and all the people in, in the rural southern Louisiana to be able to make these decisions, to be the participants in rebuilding. The idea of appointing, you know, reconstruction czars or committees of 12 or, you know, uh, fountain head type architects to head this.
0: Well, let me ask you, Mike Davis, about what uh, people on the ground, the heroes that you've talked about, have to say about being able to exert some sort of influence. We've seen, of course, the formation of the Community Labor United, who've come up with a series of demands, including the right of return and allowing local people to be in charge of reconstruction and having their voice in how it will be rebuilt. How do you see this becoming large enough to have some impact? The
2: point is that people on the ground are weakened because... The city, in my opinion, has been kept closed, artificially closed too long, discouraging people return. People are dispersed. And what is absolutely vital is for labor and for the Black Congressional Caucus, for traditional civil rights groups, to weigh in and support the demands that have been you know, raised by the grassroots people in New Orleans, that the longer the city is closed, the more control that the city's old and new elites can exercise over reconstruction, the more difficult it will become to organize against this master planning of the city that will take place at some point. And this is another reason why I have to be cautious, even with well-meaning people, like the so-called new urbanist, Andres Duanyi, Architects who want to come in with, with visions that are the glittering utopian right. New Orleans. The point is, people in Louisiana know how to live well. All we <laughs> need are, you know, jobs and some resources. They all can teach us a lot about what it means to to live well and to put values of community and friendship and family ahead of acquisitive individualism.
0: Not to mention good music and good food.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: We're paying tribute today to the late Mike Davis, who passed away on October 25th. We honor his life and work by bringing you some highlights from the many interviews Mike has done with Susie Weissman throughout the years. We go now from Hurricane Katrina and the Gulf Coast in 2005 to the fires in California, a subject for which Mike Davis was especially known for his prophetic insight. Ever since his 1995 essay, The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, shocked the mainstream public. He was pilloried in the press at the time of the article's publication, which, Looking back from today's wildfire-ravaged California in 2022 was a very prescient wake-up call about the perils of capitalist development in the heart of fire country. We bring you highlights from two interviews with Mike Davis on the subject, first from 2007 as Southern California was reeling from the devastating fires, and then in 2020— as even more deadly and destructive fires burn throughout the state, in a roundtable with myself and Native traditional practitioner Allie Meadors-Knight. Here's Mike Davis on the fires then and now.
2: Well, I think there's a virtual consensus amongst fire scientists and most managers of wilderness resource that fire suppression has led to, at least in the the deforested areas of the West, has produced bigger, more intense fires, fires that become firestorms, simply because of the loud accumulation of so much fuel in the upland areas, you know, so many old old trees. There's somewhat more debate about fire and the dynamics of fire and the reasons for fire in Chaparral and in brush areas. Although Richard Minich, who's one of the outstanding authorities on California wildfire, has argued very eloquently for years and illustrating his his points with satellite photographs of the border, that in Baja California, which is something like the natural mm. pre-European fire regime in Southern California, you don't get large fires. You have a quilt work of uh, chaparral of different ages, and you know, burning in smaller fires. Well, north of the border, you have these gigantic areas of, of older, unburned chaparral, which then under the right conditions, you know, combust like we've seen now, you know, twice in four years. Remember in 2003 there were 15 fires. This year there, there are 15 fires from Lake Arrowhead to Otay Mountain on the Mexican border.
0: Well, the other part of it, of course, too, and you mentioned this before uh, in discussing Malibu, is that city development has kind of run amok and they're allowing people to build homes in areas that are prone to fires again and again and again, even though we've seen the privatization of firefighters bringing these retardants, you know, to these wealthy communities for a mere 10,000 a year per house. But do you think in the wake of these fires that people will be discouraged from rebuilding on the same places?
2: No, I'm afraid it may, it may sound very paradoxical, but I'm afraid the absolute opposite is the case. The kind of law of fire or fire aftermath in California is not that people become more reluctant to build or we, you know, regulate what's built in the backcountry on the city's edge, but it actually accelerates development. Insurance mm-hmm. pays people to rebuild. If you go to an area I know you know well, the North Berkeley Hills, the open field, mm-hmm. you'll see that the Surface area, the houses that were built after 91 fire are dramatically larger. The same thing will happen here. Poor people are burned out. Ranchers sell their land. You get more development. And in a way, this, this will be the solution to Southern California's fire problem. And I'm, I'm not just kidding about You mean this. no more forests, just houses? Well, no, I mean, we'll, <laughs> we'll burn out all the fuel and then we'll pay the ashes. The University of Wisconsin researchers undertook a big study for the USGS and, and Forestry Service that they released in June on building in what they called the wildland urban Interface, that is, you know, on the edge where wildfire can intrude in, into the city. And what they discovered was, first, the two-thirds of the new construction in California in the 90s had been at this into the Wild brush and Mountains. But they also found out that if you build at a high enough density and put a Home Depot with the avocado trees, once stood and build enough houses, then fire frequency declines simply because we'll suburbanize every, uh, square acre of the region. So as far as I can see, this, this is the only politically uh, viable solution to, to the fire problem down here in San Diego. You can hear the engines roaring as the developer Juggernaut gets ready not to just rebuild, but actually to expand development.
0: As you were speaking, I was imagining a Southern California or even a California, you know, that's uh, denuded of trees and just has mega developments but is essentially desert and agriculture. This will not be able to uh, flourish. Do you see something like that happening?
2: Well, you know, if you're willing to wait the hour or two hours that it now takes to get out of the city and good luck to get to the edge yeah. of the metropolis or go up the mountains, this is precisely What you see, places that were once incomparably rural or wild or isolated backcountry, you know, they all look like mid-city Los Angeles or Orange County. I mean, a dramatic case is like Arrowhead running Springs area where, you know, you have thousands of people living who fled from the smog in the Inland Empire to live in the mountains, to be amongst the trees and the fresh air. But they've only managed to survive because they've logged out uh, over a million trees in the last couple of years. Still, they lost 200 homes in those last fire. And the only way that settlement will survive is to continue to d- destroy the forest. So I have an old friend, a kid I grew up with, who's a retired state park ranger from that area, uh, the parks around Bannon. And and he talks quite seriously that the San Bernardinos and the San gary you're just going to have deciduous trees. The forests are dying, people are moving out there. So you have this kind of supreme irony that the very thing people have moved to the top of the mountain to enjoy the forest, they have to destroy in order to survive the fires, but wow. also because the environment, the ecology is, is changing so rapidly.
0: I'm speaking with Mike Davis. I want to ask you finally, Mike, about the politicization of the response to the fires. It's been called the anti Katrina, the Qualcomm versus the Superdome, with this time massages and Starbucks versus misery and neglect. But in New Orleans, we saw ethnic dislocation and the use of undocumented workers to clean up. And at Qualcomm, border patrols were checking IDs and undocumented workers weren't able to actually get there, get what they needed for fear of being deported. And some of them have been deported. Can you talk a little bit about how this has been politicized?
2: Well, you can construe the Katrina analogy two ways. One is the, you know, radical enormous inequality of the treatment and and response to disaster, which isn't surprising since northern San Diego County, southern Orange County are amongst the most important Republican constituencies in the whole country. So, you know, you get an inferno with valet parking, and five-star treatment at Qualcomm. You get insurance companies writing checks, which a lot of people in New Orleans have yet to see. But the way that the Republican leadership, without little opposition from the Democrats, and I'm talking about, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, the mayor of San Diego, the Republican supervisors, and all the Murdoch employees like Bill O'Reilly, Geraldo Rivera, their control of this is something different. But what San Diego shows or California shows is the hardy Republican middle class. Somebody actually used the expression "civilized self-evacuation." <laughs> and this is assumed, I mean, just, in you know, obviously, race is cast. And quite frankly, if you read the San Diego paper, our Monopoly paper here, the Union Tribune, for all the aspersions and bad names that Ray Nagin's being called in the paper, you'd think he was somehow involved in the California fire. So in other words, they turned it into a, a campaign rally, a celebration of Republican values, the very same politicians that are responsible For the miserable level of manning or staffing in the fire departments here that have rejected the grand jury's call to create a county fire department and have refused to regulate growth are pinning medals on their chest.
0: So before we begin, Mike, and welcome you, I just want to go over the lead headlines in The New York Times If climate change was a somewhat abstract notion a decade ago, today it's all too real for Californians fleeing wildfires and smothered in smoke, the worst fires on record. And another headline was, there's been nothing in living memory like it. It's apocalyptic. If we look at this, you know, apocalyptic situation that's literally engulfing the West Coast from Southern California to the Pacific Northwest, we see the signature, and everybody's seeing it across the world in the photographs, of these red and orange landscapes or firescapes, I guess you could call them, and people are spontaneously referring to this firescape as post-nuclear, a kind of nuclear winter, or end days. So we're going to talk to Mike about what's accounting for these fires, what is the relationship of this accelerating apocalypse to climate change. And Mike, human behavior, of course, is what everyone says. It's pretty straightforward. But now we have the hottest August on record and 10 of the largest wildfires in California history all at the same time. So, you know, it's sort of like every new thing I'm going to say is a little bit more catastrophic than the last. So the bottom line of your article, Mike, that you posted essentially takes it from there. And you refer to Australia's Black Saturday forest fire in 2009, pretty apocalyptically, where you say that scientists calculate that the released energy equaled the explosion of 1,500 Hiroshima-sized bombs, and that these firestorms are many times larger So how do we begin to understand these catastrophes? What is the situation?
3: Well, let me begin with a story. Uh, Three or four years ago, I wrote an article about the fires. And in the conclusion, I said that what was most disturbing of all the great fires that year, I think this was 2017, was the fact that Greenland was burning. There were wildfires in southern Greenland. This time around, and not too minimize the horror, of the firestorms, the fire that riveted my attention and really sent chills up my back was the burning of the Eastern Mojave. Now, on the way to Las Vegas, and if unlike Hunter Thompson, you're not hallucinated, you'll pass an exit that says SEMA Road. It's a little two-lane blacktop, and it's the portal to one of the most magical forests on Earth the largest and oldest Joshua tree forest. We're talking about monarchs of Yucca, 50 feet tall, 1,000 years old, and I've been there dozens of times. They mantle a series of Pleistocene volcanoes, and it's just an incomparable place. Now, the eastern Mojave doesn't usually burn. It's covered with desert shrubs and smaller cactuses, open areas between them. But now it burns and will continue to burn, perhaps forever. Because of the invasion of an exotic, that is an alien, imported grass called red brome. And it provides this continuous understory of fire starter, which now is rapidly reshaping desert ecosystems. And it's very unclear if the big Joshuas will ever reoccur, even if we wait a thousand years. And that is really what the article is about. It's irreversible, permanent degradation of the landscapes we love so much throughout California, from the mixed pine and oak forests in the Klamath Mountains to the Mojave Desert, Sierra foothills, is not an inch of California that is now not part of this conflagration. And it's true throughout the American West, of course.
0: I need to ask a question that's probably it's an uneducated one, but you talk a lot about these alien grasses and trees that come in and shrubs that are part of the new sort of fire-burning kinds of grasses. And I want to talk a little bit more about it. But where do they come from? Are they there that are normally suppressed by the original ecosystem? Or does the wind blow them in? Do we know?
3: Yes, of course. First of all, they come like eucalyptus trees from other Mediterranean regions of the world. The classical Mediterranean, the Cape area, Western Australia, and Chile. And the Mediterranean landscapes since the Colombian conquest and the development of world trade, have been constantly sending each other plants, which thrive in similar climates, but can prove to be incredibly destructive, like eucalyptus, which is the kind of ultimate fire plant. Others were introduced as fodder for cattle, but the conversion of landscape by exotic weeds, who then create or accelerate fire ecologies. There's an old story going back to the Spanish conquest of California and some of the most iconic plants of the American West are actually recent imports. Think about tumbling tumbleweed, for instance, and you hear Roy Rogers singing in the background. That's a Russian thistle, which has had a devastating impact in terms of fire throughout the Intermountain West. In California, we lost our beautiful native grasslands by the end of the 19th century due to overgrazing. And then, of course, in the 20th century, fire suppression has created monster fires that were extremely rare in the paleo climate record in California because we did not allow fire-adapted trees like oaks and chaparral to rejuvenate themselves through fire. And you ended up with these immense acreages of unburnt, old, often biologically sterile plants just waiting to explode in fires. And when you have an extreme fire in a habitat where plants are fire adapted, in fact, it thrived through small-scale burning, it can permanently change the balance of plants, the balance of soil chemicals. But above all, it's the frequency of large fires now. What were considered anomalous events in 2003, 2008, are now annual events. And I have a really horrifying example of all this not far from me. Queamacca State Park. My childhood, and endless days spent hiking and fishing in the park, and it contains an unusual tree that it's the only uh, location for this species. Now, it burnt. In the 2000s, it's never drawn back. Despite heroic efforts by the park managers to replant pines and conifers, it's not recovered. What has flourished are these invasive grasses and shrubs. If anybody's wondering what these things look like, it's not a brome, but it's an equally excellent fire starter. Every spring now, our hills eternally turn turned gold, bright yellow okay? That's black mustard. It's spread absolutely everywhere. And once these take hold, they're almost ineradicable. What you need to do, burning unless you do it every six months doesn't really help because they're fire. You know, they live on fire. But if you weed them, you have to do it all the time to suppress them. They tried goats and cattle but they're very ineffective. They don't like it. I mean, these are really kind of nightmare devil weed that has now become our constant companion in California. These grasses are bringing annual fire to deserts where plants have not fire adapted, like the Joshua trees that have existed for a thousand years, but they're everywhere and their appearance in the forest. And the significance in terms of combustion and fire is really only something people have recently grasped. I think that exurbanization is also the major ally of both weeds and fires, because everywhere you're building, almost two thirds of homes built in California in the last generation have been built in high or extreme high fire risk areas. Uh, San Diego County has sixty thousand homes already in the pipeline built in, you know, the most flammable landscapes imaginable. But what happens then is through road building and land clearance, you make way for the weeds. People on their view lots worry about fire, so they clear all the chaparral or brush away. Then the grasses come, and they don't realize they've actually made their situation worse. This is what a botanical counter-revolution looks like.
0: This segment is really taking us from Southern California to Northern California, from San Diego, L.A. County, literally up through the Bay Area and Butte counties with Allie Meador's night. Just to begin, the climate change and the changes in the ecosystem that it's brought is already beginning to drastically affect our lives, as I've just said, in California. But from the perspective of indigenous peoples, which we're going to get into being here for at least 10,000 years, or longer, the change began a long time ago with colonization, and especially here in California, the gold rush, the genocide of indigenous peoples, and also plays a major factor in setting the stage for megafires. We're finally seeing articles everywhere looking at alternative traditions of land management, highlighting especially indigenous methods. So Ali Metters Knight joins us. She is a member of the Metoopda. Indian tribe. She's the mother of five, a traditional basket weaver based in Chico. And she's also working to form partnerships for federal forest stewardship, contracting and tribal forestry programs. And she's been a traditional ecological knowledge practitioner, that's T-E-K, for more than 20 years, collaborating on environmental education and land restoration project and she's the founder of the chico traditional ecological stewardship program and you can read about her work in chico and butte county and wait for it here's the website tekchico.org i know you're in butte county where two of the most devastating wildfires in california history have hit just in the last two years Trump says that, of course, famously and ignorantly, that wildfires are a result of poor forest management, and he blames California not understanding that it's federal land, and that he calls for people to rake the forest comically, but perhaps address Ali Mitteters's night, that attitude. What does, uh, say Trump's idea of forest management, how does that differ from what you're suggesting?
4: there's definitely a difference of how you and we've kind of really got a good idea now of like combating invasive species in california and to get that it's saying i'm living in like second gen third generation apocalyptic california you know welcome to the show Mm -hmm. welcome to hotel california (laughs) this is what it is because of invasive species because of mining because of there's a constant change, there's a constant devastation, a a creek that's gone, a place that's beautiful and been tended to for thousands of years, hundreds of years, specifically by a family, and that area is now completely underwater, and it's a reservoir. (laughs) That water is owned by a big fancy family, you know, who sends it down, and we basically have The idea of knowing that when I know uh, my traditional knowledge of saying we're trying to get through a star thistle, which is a nasty thistle here in Butte County, that we the behavior of the oaks is that the star thistle does not like canopy, so it needs open wiping spaces. So large canopy of trees are good, but in the meantime, you can burn them in a certain cycle when they're not seeding, which is just a teeny tiny window period, but it's during a non-fire season, so we'll have it, folks. The idea is that, you know, all of us collectively working on this is going to be impossible unless we, you know, have in- incentives for people. And so without these major fires, without people losing property, without California spending, oh, half a billion dollars to do management, but we're going to spend $40 billion for damage for afterward. And and that's not disaster capitalism, you know. <laughs> and, and that's why it's so hard for us to really – push this program unless we can get insurance companies involved and giving people discounts to allow these workforces onto their properties and around their cities and in their urban interfaces it calls through these forests because traditionally all of these federal forests on tribal territory, tribes are still not allowed to manage those forests and then you have these 180 years of overgrowth and now That it's burned, it's almost like a reset button, you know, and if we cannot do the large landscape restoration, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot because we collectively all have to do this together. Ali was just
0: describing the kind of thing that you've written about so much, Mike, and I want to bring you into the conversation to talk a little bit about what they're proposing and the political obstacles and the reality that we face given, you know, disaster capitalism.
3: Well, let me first refer to apocalypse and its actual meaning in the book of Revelations. The apocalypse is the unveiling of the true history of the world, not the history written by victors and uh, owners, but the history that's been lived by common people itself. And what's been happening and what's happening on this program right now is starting to retrieve is some of that hidden knowledge of the fact that capitalist civilization, white capitalist civilization in California has been mining and never ceased to mine. The natural resources of this state have just destabilized its ecosystems and have created a corridor for climate change and fire to transform large parts of California into something unrecognizable to us. Also, I wanted to make the point that it's not traditional communities in Northern California or the Sierras. It's not poor people living in some cabins with the problem. But the majority of the homes that have been built in high fire hazard areas are in fact homes for relatively wealthy people or more. just people seeking the view lots. And it's also driven by the racist logic that dominates the recent geography of this country. White people with means fleeing the cities, fleeing a multiracial, diverse society, creating their little fortified luxury redoubts at the expense of the environment. At the end of the day, you have to start talking about how to control the private land market that dictates uh, the shape of our cities, the nature of our lives, the degradation of our environments. As long as corporations, banks, big developers, and insurance companies make all the fundamental land use decisions in the state, our cause is kind of hopeless. They have to be challenged, you know, frontally, in the way that some groups who began to challenge the private utilities.
4: And I think that we need to change the paradigm. You want to take control of the pioneer Wild West type, basically idea of how California was created and turn that around and actually do it with tribes this time using federal. We have 33 million acres of forestry that we can get workforce and crews to do and those workforce, everyone who's managing that land has rights to that land. And so I think this is a way for people to to work together for land and a right to work live on that land safely and collectively and know how to utilize the goods for services on that land using the knowledge from the tribe, but actually giving that credit to the tribe while doing so. But I think this is the kind of decolonizing way that we can expand our communities a little bit better by being certified and learning to do land management, managing that land and getting rights to that land collectively and working together to have that. And that would open up a new frontier. Mike, I
0: want to leave the last word to you. And I should say that in this article that you wrote, your last three words were gone, California gone. So with this question, what is to be done and what can be done, short of revolution or with revolution, how do you
3: address that? Well, we need to try struggle for sky burning and even a grudging admission that Native Americans were masterful stewards of the landscape. That's been textbook for 40 years. And you can see how successful it's been. What is the greatest obstacle to gardening, our environment, it's the political beliefs and power of the people I've been talking about. The wealthy Californians who created hundreds of thousands of ex-urban homes. And let's be clear, most of them are non-members of the Sierra Club or the Democratic Party. And they're violently opposed to I mean, in San Diego is absolutely crazy after the Great Fires in 2003, 2007. Even people in East County voted down a small tax measure to hire more firefighters. They live in this illusion of total autonomy, total sovereignty over everything. I mean, it should be clear that the political obstacle to this are the rich in California. And the rich in California have made, as far as I know, not since the San Francisco General Strike in 1934 one important victory is for the labor movement i can't think of a single concession that they've been forced to make and now we're fighting for the survival of, of everything we love in the state and for the, the future for ordinary people in this state to enjoy all the ma- majesty of its landscapes and nature and we should have been doing this years Years ago, we need to get labor aboard these issues and see it in other ways. It's not just building you know alternative energy networks, it's controlling development and unfortunately, the labor movement in California was for so many years dominated by construction unions who basically would be in favor of oh, you know, let's bathe the Sierras, why not? It's jobs, but the balance has changed, and more socially conscious public sector. Unions now lead the movement, but they desperately need to hear voices like yours and understand what native Californians know that the rest of us are ignorant of, but our survival depends on sitting at your knees and learning some of these lessons. The privilege beyond with all of you. Thank you.
0: continue our tribute to Mike Davis who died on October 25th an interview with Mike Davis from March 22nd, 2020, just at the beginning of the COVID lockdown. 15 years earlier, Mike had published The Monster at Our Door, the global threat of avian flu, and we see in this interview how Mike viewed the coronavirus pandemic as the familiar monster now at our door. Mike talked about the huge challenges coronavirus poses for humanity, the impotence of global capitalism in its current neoliberal form, to prepare for or confront the biological crisis, he called it a medical Katrina, one that exposes the woeful unpreparedness of our disinvested public health system, as well as the stark class divide of health care in the United States." Today we're going to begin with writer, Marxist, environmentalist, and urban theorist Mike Davis, whose writings on the COVID-19 pandemic in Jacobin, the nation, in these times, are circulating widely. Fifteen years ago, Mike published The Monster at Our Door, the global threat of avian flu, and he sees the coronavirus and this pandemic or plague as the familiar monster now at our door. We're going to get Mike's views on the huge challenges coronavirus poses for humanity, the impotence of global capitalism in the face of biological crisis. And Mike writes that this medical Katrina exposes the woeful unpreparedness of our disinvested public health system, as well as the stark class divide of health care in the United States. The urgent demand now is for an international public health infrastructure at minimum. So, Mike, I was going to just say that the coronavirus cases in New York are doubling daily. And in California, the governor's ordered all residents to shelter in place, warning that 56 percent of the population could get the virus, which means probably something like 25 million people. And on the other hand, the economy has not just crashed but come to a virtual halt or a near halt. Everything urgent from masks, tests, medical personnel, hospital beds, ventilators, and pharmaceutical interventions are nowhere matching need. So we're gonna get your views on all of that as well as the start class divide of our healthcare system. So welcome back Thank to you. the program, Mike Davis. So Thank let's just begin, you know, with the spread of this virus and how you see it at this point.
3: Well of course. The virus pandemic grows exponentially. So when the governor predicts 56%, that's from a simple mathematical model based on what's known about the spread so far, and particularly the flood of information and research that's coming out of China. China gets a lot of blame for trying to cover up the beginning of the pandemic, but they've been absolutely exemplary. I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about its medical community been exemplary in providing uh, quick updates and research. So this is not some off-the-wall prediction meant to scare us into locking ourselves in in the background. It's exactly what you would expect in a pandemic.
0: And we see that, you know, as you just mentioned, that China, it may have been the conditions that, that created the virus could probably go into, but we saw an immediate or fairly immediate response and testing there and in South Korea and elsewhere where there were motorcycle you know, medical personnel stopping people in the streets and doing immediate testing, whereas here in the United States, we just don't have anything like that. And I'd like to get your views just a little bit about comparing China, say, to Italy and Iran so far, I saw a report from a medical professional in Milan today that you know basically said they're so overwhelmed that they've stopped counting the dead.
3: Yes, I mean in the Chinese case, of course, we've heard that well, China's been able to contain the first wave of the epidemic because look, they're a quasi-totalitarian surveillance society. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I think. Feel- Feel there's not really any obvious connection between putting a million Uyghurs in re education camps or, for oh. that matter, surveilling every jaywalker in the country and reducing the social credit points. No relationship between these truly authoritarian and scary aspects of the Chinese regime and the way they dealt with the epidemic. They have had extraordinary success in this because, first of all, they were able to contain it within Wuhan, or the larger province, 58 million people, Hubei, And that allowed them to move medical personnel who otherwise would have had to stay in place to face the epidemic as it quickly reached them. This gave time for those personnel then to just pour into Wuhan. It also happens that China does manufacture things like, for instance, most of the n 95 protective masks in this country, I believe, are manufactured in China. So they have unusual capabilities to uh, keep the supply chain going. But I've been trying to argue that we need to separate state capacity and public capacity to react in such an energetic and scientific way to the pandemic from authoritarianism per se. We need to imagine how this works in a democratic country, one that also mobilizes social courage and the great strength of communities. China now not only has contained the first wave, the reason I say the first wave is because it's entirely likely that, for instance, if the Chinese economy goes back to work, people travel more, that coronavirus could come roaring back, though probably not as in lethal a form as in the first wave. But the Chinese know this and they're prepared to deal with three or four further ways before the uh, pandemic's uh, uh, suppressed. But China has such capacity and such interest in creating uh, an image of being a moral force in the world that they're now engaged in the massive export both of scientific information, of doctors, and above all, of medical supplies to the rest of the world. They have a big contention now in Italy, which has turned to them because the Italians have discovered they can't rely on their partners in the European Union to supply these things. Each state has you know, decided to bunker down and prevent exports of their own scarce commodities. This could be perhaps a death nail in the coffin of, uh, of European unity. But the Chinese are wrapping this up across the world. And of course, total contrast to this country where we could have stood on the Statue of Liberty that says, Go away and don't phone us. Oh
0: God. Um, I just wanted to go back to that because, you know, it's kind of a horrible prospect to think that the alternatives are either a completely dysfunctional global capitalist system that now also exposes just how weak, empty, and ridiculous its leaders are in the face of of this pandemic. And I say that from the United States, not just the Trump presidency, but the pathetic Democratic response as well, that was woefully inadequate and self-limiting, figuring, oh, well, we'll see what we might get our Republican partners in the senate to maybe accept so we have that as one model or this form of what we call it a market stalinist authoritarianism that seems to at least mobilize resources much better but there's another question here too, my could i
3: could i interrupt you susie yeah yeah what i'm trying to argue here is it's not necessarily the case that it's the authoritarian institutions and policies Of China that have been responsible or become the precondition for such an effective response. It's been the building up of of Chinese medical capacity, it's the traditional discipline of Chinese people. Another model I put out there in some recent columns is the small country of Ireland, which of course is a capitalist society with great social inequality. Nonetheless, it also, by the way, a country with one of the highest rates of unionization still in the world. Uh, there's a large left of sorts in, in, in Ireland, but Ireland's response utterly different from that of uh, the United States or other Western European countries. So immediately after the first cases appeared, the Minister of Health went on TV and called for medical volunteers, doctors, nurses, people in retirement, people unfinished medical school stuff I think. Cuomo was talking about in this press conference. 24,000 people answered that call within the first day. Simultaneously, grassroots people created a national volunteer system for people to go home to home, calling on old people, buying their groceries for them, helping them out in ways to be. In Ireland right now, the National Police Force, the GARDA, deliver prescriptions to elderly people. Now Ireland might not be a model for a country as large as the United States, but it's certainly a good model for conducting containment within say a medium or large sized city well, I to,
0: be, I'm yes, sorry I just ahead. wanted to ask you about that because what I was going to get to is that there's never been a more crying need for international cooperation, and since China was first and then is now has apparently flattened the curve, as they say. It seems that there's a lot to learn from it and use from it. And yet, even on the question of testing, the U.S. wants to develop its own tests. And because we have many states, the states themselves are developing their own tests, and it may even get down to hospitals individually developing tests. And I'm just wondering if you have any insights on why there isn't at this moment, you know, the kind of international cooperation that could be put into practice. And so, you know, and then I want to get on just a little bit into a little bit of a deeper discussion about why you think Italy is going the way it is, but maybe to that first question about international cooperation.
3: Well, we face the most serious crisis possible, international solidarity as so many wealthy countries hoard, all their medical supplies and, uh, you know, resources for use on themselves, which is not even the best course to pursue on a basis of, you know, maximum benefit for the the countries involved. I mean, the kind of collapse of coordination and resource sharing and emergency production of supplies in Europe is pretty shocking when you look at it. But the larger malaise is... That since, during the Cold War, imagine during the Cold War, you might be a farmer living in uh, some part of the Sudan belt in some little obscure village. Well, during the Cold War, each superpower had an interest in knowing, were you going to vote for the communists? Were you going to support the United States? Were you going to embrace five-year plans? Were you going to uh, open a McDonald's, you know, instead? In other words, the Cold War was inclusive of all humanity in the sense that there wasn't an inch of ground or a person on Earth who wasn't contested by the two systems. When the Cold War ended, this disappeared in literally 24 hours. Big parts of the Earth, huge numbers of poor people around the planet. their surplus to the labor requirements of the global economy. They've lost their geopolitical importance So in a sense, they've been already triaged and put in the hopeless category. They're not valuable to us anymore, so we don't care really very much whether we live or die. Uh, So we've adopted what is essentially exclusionary rhetoric and then backed it up with building walls, excluding migrants. Even when that's an idiotic policy, because, for instance, Italy were the oldest population second oldest population on the planet after Japan, is 23% of the population over 65 as compared to 3% in West Africa. In Italy, there's actually a huge labor shortage as there is in all geriatric and near geriatric countries for one thing. You know, they need large supplies of young workers to take care of, of old people. They need migrants. But instead, they've closed them to, you know, let them drown in the, the Mediterranean, beat them up, put them in camps. We have closed off the exits to a big part of the world. And as they're forced to leave the land or free their native region because of droughts and crop failure, disease, or, you know, fascist local political systems, they have nowhere to go. They're kind of like the homeless in California it's entirely legal to be homeless. But because of all the uh, local municipal regulations against camping or sleeping outdoors, you can be homeless only if you're standing still walking down the street. Otherwise, you don't have a single inch of ground where you can conduct any of your necessary physical activities. And this is what we've done to a very large minority of of humanity. The stark choice before us, is if we continue down this path, we basically condemned a quarter of a billion people, half a billion people, almost to certain death over the next generation. Now this has been framed that this way by the United Nations for years. It's framed as a question of the survival of the poorest by the current Argentine soccer fan who lives in a big house in Rome. But the American left as not the ball. I mean, in the 60s, I mean, there were a lot of problems with our generation. But in the 60s, we were above all internationalists yeah. willing to take make the sacrifices yeah. and, and the risks for that. Internationalism is in short supply in the progressive movement and in the uh, socialist left, per se. I love Bernie Sanders, but has he ever talked about the World poor? Is he talking now about transferring medical aid I mean, we should be fighting that as we ramp up production of these lifeline supplies that are missing, as we ramp them up to eventually meet our needs, that we keep producing more and more. So like the Chinese, we can do our bit in dealing with the medical emergencies as coronavirus turns into a a firestorm, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa.
0: I'm speaking with Mike Davis, the urban theorist whose book, The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, written all the way back in 2005, perhaps couldn't be more apropos for the coronavirus pandemic that we're all facing right now. And Mike, as you were speaking, I was thinking about which monster is the one that's really at our door. Is it the coronavirus or is it, you know, you just talked about all of the policy weaknesses Uh, worldwide, especially this uh, racism and anti-immigrant sentiment that doesn't see uh, immigrants as sort of the key to the future health of the economy in the world as labor. And in your article that appeared in Jacobin in these times, The Nation in different places in different ways, you talk about this as a medical Katrina. Maybe you could just dwell a little bit On that, before we talk about, you know, not just the unpreparedness, but what might be instead?
3: Well, our governments have opened the door not only to these novel and emergent diseases, but to all the old plagues uh, from the past. Let me dwell on focus on two things. First of all, of course, is that since the Reagan administration, when private hospitals were allowed to start getting rid of hospital beds, eliminating 20% of the hospital beds in America because they were following Harvard Business School logic of just-in-time inventory and wanted to raise capacities to 90%, leaving absolutely no surplus for surges in disease. We've done everything to downsize and reduce our capacities to respond to a pandemic. And that's all occurred in the face of immense course Voices from doctors, medical researchers, uh, journalists, even Hollywood films, telling us that we're utterly unprepared in, by disinvesting in public health. For instance, CDC's budget, Center for Disease Controlled Budget, in real terms has shrunk by 10% recently. By disinvesting in medical preparedness, the very time that everybody is warning us, as did a group of formal White House advisors who briefed President Trump on the imminent threat of avian flu, by disinvesting in our public health defenses. The obvious has happened, the predictable has happened. But there's a second area we need to focus on, and that is that Big Pharma has abdicated totally the field of research and development of new antivirals and new antibiotics. The people who will be stricken, particularly people in my age group with elderly white male with suppressed immune system, be shut into hospitals, overcrowded hospital. they already have raging epidemics of antibiotic-resistant bacteria like staph and C. diff. And so on killing 30,000, 40,000 people a year, making hospitals one of the most dangerous places to be in. Think what that's going to look like for critical cases of, of corona. But it's because big pharma does not find it profitable to reduce the medicines upon which human life on this planet survives. It's more profitable to deal with male impotence or produce heart, heart medicines or addictive uh, tranquilizers. After <laughs> SARS, for instance, when, when SARS, the first SARS outbreak in 2003 occurred, crash program to develop a vaccine in the minute the pandemic was stopped in its tracks, totally forgot about developing a yeah. vaccine. Who was the big pharma going to sell it to? Yeah. So we're being betrayed in the most uh, outrageous way by private pharmaceutical monopolies. We, In order to Ensure public health at the most elementary level. Big pharma has to be broken up and government has to. The public sector has to move in. I'm not excluding a role for giving contracts to hundreds of young startup firms headed by the kind of Andrew Yangs of the world. You know, fine. Government should coordinate it and, if necessary, do the research and development and the production. This was the case a long time ago during the Second World War. The army was afraid that Spanish, something like Spanish would return, so they asked some young medical hotshots, including a doctor named Jonas Salt, to develop an influenza vaccine. They did, and the government produced it. He went on to do, you know, other great things. But those two things combined: disinvestment in public health, depending almost entirely on the private sector for the supply lines of of materials, and big pharma's education of antivirals and antibiotics. This is what a perfect storm looks like, and it's been unnecessarily and artificially created.
0: I was just going to say, you know, when Trump got into his press conference and he, you know, said that there was this malaria vaccine that might just work, and he struggled to pronounce it, immediately afterwards the producer of that vaccine in pharmaceuticals doubled its price and then was warned maybe that wasn't a good thing to do. And this is before there's any testing or any it's it really reminds me that the other side of this is since the Reagan administration and the image that the Republican Party, you know, represented the sort of father figures who knew best how to manage the economy, you know, has been exposed for the hollowness that it is and that we're not just ill-equipped in public infrastructure, but in public leadership as well. And that sort of begs the question because, you know, on the ground, you're seeing people doing heroic things. Even DSA is shopping for seniors and other organizations are doing what they can. You know, we're at at a crisis point in the sense that Now, more than ever, we need a kind of mass mobilization, but at a time when we can't go out on the streets and be together. So I think in your article, you start to talk about not just the social divide in the disinvestment of public infrastructure, but it begs the question of how we rebuild it quickly now and what kind of demands come in place. And we've already seen that Bernie Sanders has been literally sidelined in this race for presidency. So maybe you could just comment on all of those things.
3: Well, he may have been sidelined by the Democratic establishment as far as the nomination is concerned. But he's fighting fit and out there trying to create a a progressive response to the virus. And it really is all important that the struggle continue on the floor of the Democratic Convention. Universal health care, single payer health care must be in the Democratic platform. Sometimes convention platforms are meaningless, uh, just a bunch of unctuous words to conciliate the defeated uh, constituencies. But as the Christian right showed in 2016, Trump capitulated entirely to them and allowed them to write the platform. The Sanders delegates and all of us shouting outside the convention hall, in, uh, or is it in Milwaukee, should be trying to storm the stage during the platform process, because an awful lot of people who voted tactically for Biden, because they believed that he, you know, was more likely to defeat Trump. These people also, I mean, are are supporters in total converts to healthcare as a human right. So, you know, the struggle needs to continue. The other thing is that for years, I've been arguing in terms of Earthquake preparedness, because i have somehow gotten into the small business of writing about disasters in general, <laughs> that California has this idiotic system where basically we're told to hoard toilet paper and wait to be dug out of the rubble by the professionals. Where in other countries like Japan, people are taught how to help themselves and their neighbors. Uh, I think San Francisco has actually finally adopted a system, something like this, where all the health professionals or people with any kind of necessary, or useful expertise in a disaster, well, uh, the city knows uh, who they are and those people are networked to respond. And so what we're doing through these policies is we're doing the absolute opposite of what we should be doing. It's entirely feasible and compatible with social distancing, to give large volunteer roles to the public. It's also, in my mind, smacks a little bit of totalitarianism when the pandemic's use is an excuse for totally unnecessary restrictions on individual freedom. I mean, you look at talk to any doctor and ask them if it's dangerous. Take your dog for a walk, jog in the park, or go out in the hills and go for a hike. Of course it's not. As long as you practice social distancing, this is one of the best things you can be doing right now people are in this country we are faced with a monster of mental depression, just like two thousand and eight led like to thousands of suicides and family breakups and 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 so on. This is going to be one of the major damages that the pandemic does to ordinary people in this country who are sitting at home, told by Trump to turn on Fox News for the duration. But in <laughs> fact, they're looking at, you know, their checkbooks. They're looking at the fact. And I'm sure this affects you and me as as well. My pension was put into a mutual fund. And uh, I don't know. I mean, 30, 40% <laughs> of it just evaporated. <laughs> We're supposed to stay at home and be cheerful. You must be kidding. The one activity, okay, that keeps people emotionally and mentally helpful in such a a dreadful period is to have a real social responsibility for others in some way, shape, or form. But now they're telling us you can't do anything. It's much like air travel. I mean, things always unnerved me in air travel is you just sit there like baggage. (laughs) Whatever will happen will happen to you. People want to have some minimal control. And they want some way to express their own solidarity and generosity with their neighbors, uh, people they love. And of course, this is arising spontaneously all across the country. But it needs to have its own strategy and its own leadership. And we really need—we no—I won't say need. We really must not concede the freedom of public space. Some, you know, absurd argument about. The pandemic that has no, you know, medical justification. We must continue to protest, and we must continue to organize to help each other. And uh, if doctors and nurses weren't so overwhelmed uh, by the heroic work they're doing, they would probably be leading that effort right now. I must say, I mean, it's it's progress that Cuomo has embraced the Irish model and called for all the retired medical personnel in New York to step up the plate. I'm sure you'll get a tremendous response.
0: Mike, thank you so much. We've run out of time, but I think, you know, there's a lot of takeaways from what you just said, but the key I think is that as humans, we struggle for autonomy and dignity and solidarity. And those are the things that we need right now more than ever. And I also take to heart what you said that we storm the Democratic National Convention and make sure that those are on the platform somehow. If not, oh, well they're on notice. But Mike, thanks so much as always for your insights and hope in this in the face of this monster that's right at our door right now. And just want to urge the listeners to go out and read Mike's articles on COVID-19. You know, he's been writing everywhere. So go to Jacobin the Nation in these times. You could probably give more Mike, but I just want to thank you so much and go pick up his Uh, 2005 book, if it's still around, which was The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Right on. Power to the people.